History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 111, The Man Who Could Walk Through Empires. Last time, Alexander III of Macedon arrived on the plain of Galgamela for a second dramatic confrontation with Darius III of Persia. Much like their previous encounter, it was brutal and hard-fought, but ultimately Darius was sent fleeing from the battlefield effectively ceding the ancient lands of Mesopotamia to Alexander in their entirety. The lord of all Asia took up his new residence in the palace at Babylon for a month, enjoying the luxuries and traditions the city had to offer. Yet, in the end, the war would not be over until Alexander had truly and completely defeated his opponent. But first, he would take advantage of Darius's absence. After Galgamela, Darius went to Ecbatana. It was a sound choice, he thought. Elam and Persia were the most loyal provinces in the empire by default, but Ecbatana was the most defensible of the royal capitals now that Babylon was gone. There, he could lick his wounds and recoup the empire's strength as the Macedonians fought their way south. So he thought. We left the Macedonian army just as they entered the Zagros Mountains, moving along the royal road towards Susa. By now, Alexander was in something of a race against time. It was early November, and winter would set in on the mountains quickly. The plains of Khuzestan are hot at the best of times, but the surrounding mountains can still take on plenty of snow, more so 2,300 years ago. It was at least a slow trip with 40,000 men and a baggage train in tow through unfamiliar terrain. Immediately after the Battle of Gaugamela, Alexander had sent a single messenger named Philoxenos to Susa and demanded their surrender, but Philoxenos hadn't reported back. They were taking a serious risk by continuing the campaign right now. Quite probably to Alexander's immense surprise, he was met on the road by Persian horsemen, but not a war party. Abulites, the satrap of Elam, had sent his son, a small cavalry guard, and Philoxenos to find the Macedonian army, deliver his surrender to Alexander, and guide the conquerors to Susa in a timely fashion. They arrived at the next Achaemenid capital 20 days after leaving the last one. In late November, the full army encamped in the mustering grounds outside the palace of Susa, while Alexander and the officer corps entered the Grand Palace first built by Darius the Great and rebuilt by Darius II. There, they found a treasury beyond their wildest dreams. 
50,000 talents of silver bullion, mounds of purple cloth, and a collection of old Persian war trophies stretching at least back to the time of Xerxes, because it included statues from the Athenian sanctuary of Eleusis, taken during the Persian invasions of Greece. Alexander ordered these statues and much of the wealth be prepared for shipping and the long journey back to Europe. Alexander's first evening in Susa yielded one of the most famous stories of the Macedonian conqueror. They gathered for dinner in the Grand Persian Throne Room, though it's unclear if this was the palace's small inner courtyard or the Apadana rebuilt by Artaxerxes II. The Macedonian nobles and Persian courtiers alike were there with Alexander taking his seat in the Achaemenid throne. Much to the lord of all Asia's embarrassment, he was noticeably shorter than most of his predecessors, and his feet did not touch the ground while seated in that throne. One of the Macedonian servants grabbed a low table, barely above floor height, and set it down for Alexander to use as a footstool. One of the Persian eunuchs present let out a sound of audible horror when Alexander set his feet on the table. Evidently, it had been consecrated for use by the king himself while dining reclined on the ground, and it brought great feelings of shame seeing it degraded in this way. However, the Macedonian officer Philotas spoke up and told Alexander not to feel guilty for this trespass. Where this table had been consecrated and honored as a treasure of Darius, it was only fit to be the footstool of Alexander. They stayed in Susa for most of December, while Alexander took a break from conquest to rearrange his satraps, and the Macedonian governors were considered satraps. They also waited on fresh reinforcements from Macedon, who arrived under the command of Amyntas, son of Andromenes. Yes, I know this is like the seventh Amyntas we've dealt with, get used to it, the Macedonians have fewer names than even the Persians. With these reinforcements, Alexander was ready to depart. He went through his now customary process of assigning a satrap of Susiana, as the province would be known under Greek rule, and shuffling his officers around as he assigned troops to garrison the city. This time, rather than simply garrisoning his new city, he left behind 1,000 of his oldest veteran troops, 1,000 of the men who had been serving Macedon since the wars of Philip II. Some of these men had been at war for nearly 30 years and had seen Macedon go from a hinterland kingdom to the most formidable power in the world. Their king decided it was time for them to get some well-earned rest, but also to get these old traditionalists out of his army because there was increasing tension over the idea of continuing further east. With the administrative issues settled, it was time for the Macedonian Imperial Army to move out, marching southeast along the royal road as the land gradually ascended into the Zagros Mountains once again. Here, in the Elamite Highlands, they encountered the other half of Elamite culture, 
More specifically, in this case, a group of people called the Uxians. They were a pastoralist community living in the lands dotted with the remains of forgotten eras of Elamite history, never properly conquered by the Achaemenids per se, but paid off well enough to remain loyal toward Darius, and they certainly weren't about to let an even more foreign invader take their territory uncontested. So the Uxians prepared in a narrow mountain pass remembered by history as the Uxian Defile. An Uxian messenger was sent to negotiate with Alexander, demanding that he pay them the same protection money that they had come to expect from the Persians. But the king was done negotiating. He rebuffed the emissary and ordered his hypospists, a phalanx of 8,000 men, and a few hundred of his hetairoi into formation. They marched on the Uxian position at speed. One of the Persians that had joined them following the many preceding surrenders informed Alexander that an alternate route through the mountains off the main road was available. The general Craterus took the Hippospists to a position on the high ground behind Uxian lines, the most likely fallback location for their army. Alexander, meanwhile, went to the nearest Uxian village and raised it to the ground. This forced the Uxians to turn, abandoning their position in the defile to face Alexander, who already had the numerical advantage. The battle is not described in great detail, but the Macedonian phalanx overwhelmed the native defenders, forcing them to retreat straight into the waiting spears of Craterus and the Hippospists. The Uxians were then trapped between Craterus on one side and Alexander on the other. With nowhere to go, they were butchered on the road. The few that survived were forced to negotiate terms with Alexander, pledging to pay tribute to the Macedonians in the form of a debilitating share of their livestock annually, something the Achaemenids had never even bothered to force out of their Uxian neighbors. With the Uxians defeated, Parmenion took the rest of the Macedonians down the main road and resumed his position behind Craterus, with Alexander himself leading the procession at the head of the 8,000-strong phalanx. They continued on without event until they reached the border of Parsa, where the royal road ran through another narrow pass called the Persian Gates. It should come as no surprise that the Achaemenid homeland had no intention of giving up without a fight, even if the great king had fled to Ecbatana. However, Darius III had taken the majority of their fighting men, meaning satrap Ariobarzanes of Parsa was left to make up the defense with the leftovers of the Persian military. Arian reports that he commanded 40,700 men, but this is impossible. That would have been a significant force for the whole Achaemenid Empire in its prime, and would have been useless in such a narrow mountain pass. Modern estimates range from just several hundred Persian defenders to around 2,000. But it would hardly make a difference. Alexander really did have upwards of 30,000 fighting men still in tow, the Persians' only real hope was to defend the pass so successfully that Alexander simply couldn't progress, 
forcing the Macedonians to withdraw from Parsa and double back to go through Media, where Darius could face them once again. Now, the Persians had a good strategy here. I'll post a picture on the website, but you can get a pretty good sense of the issue from just a description. The Achaemenids, or even plausibly the Elamites before them, had constructed a fort on the eastern end of the Persian gates. The sheer rocky cliffs on either side were barely wide enough to accommodate a modern two-lane road, and it was late December when snow and ice blanketed the terrain. It was treacherous, and even a small number of well-supplied archers could hold off the Macedonians indefinitely. That was the idea, and initially everything went to plan. Alexander chose 17,000 of his best infantry to make the initial assault, planning to simply batter down the gates and force their way into Parsa, overwhelming the defenders with sheer number. The Persians lined the eastern end of the hillsides on either side, in addition to the walls of the fortification, and rained arrows down on the Macedonians as they advanced. It was shooting fish in a barrel, and taking advantage of the key weakness of the Macedonian phalanx. Their small hoplon shields couldn't provide enough cover to defend from an attack from above, and the head of the army was slaughtered so quickly that the rear guard was still advancing when the vanguard turned around to retreat. The invaders started running into one another, causing further confusion and disarray that created more openings for Persian arrows to find their mark. Ariobarzanes could go to bed that night thinking he would be remembered as the savior of Parsa. In fact, he went to bed for the next 30 nights thinking that. For a month, the Macedonians encamped in the frigid Persian mountains, trying and failing to wear down the defenders enough to take the pass by force with no avail. Alexander refused to relent or to turn back, even as his soldiers' bodies started piling up in the pass itself, where arrows picked off anyone who attempted to recover the dead. But here's the thing. This army was, at its heart, a Greek force. If there was one historical event that the Greeks could think of while fighting the Persians in a narrow pass with conquest on the line, it was Thermopylae. Ironically, their roles were reversed, with the outnumbered Persians defending themselves from the Greek horde. Still, though, the tactic to try was obvious. Throughout this month-long siege, Alexander had scouts searching the mountains for an alternate route whether a road, a goat path, or just a navigable stretch of wilderness through the mountains. Finally, they found one. To the north of the Persian gates, a narrow path ran in a wide arc all the way around the mountains, exiting just north of the Persian fortifications on the other side. So the plan was set into motion, and the Persians would have their very own Thermopylae. The true action of the Battle of the Persian Gates took place on the 20th of January, 330 BCE, 
when Alexander led the Hippospists and his hand-picked phalanx along the northern route and ordered Ptolemy to lead their main force back into the pass. When the Macedonians launched another assault, the Persians took up their standard positions and began picking away at Ptolemy's forces with arrows and javelins. That is, until Alexander and his troops erupted behind their lines. The lord of all Asia had swung out in a wide arc to hit the Persian camp from its undefended southeastern side, with Philotas taking a detachment as soon as they exited the footpath to sneak up behind the Persian archers on the northern hill. The plan worked, with Alexander's men swarming into the camp and Philotas storming up behind the archers on one side. The remaining defenders were thrown into disarray as they turned around to try and defend themselves from the surprise attack, leaving Ptolemy to assault the gates in earnest for the first time. Many of the Persian archers were unprepared for the resulting melee, carrying nothing but their bows. They were forced to grapple with the Macedonians, pulling them down to the ground and trying to wrestle swords and pikes out of the enemy's hands to fight back. The ancient accounts differ on the fate of Ariobarzanes himself, but he's never heard from again, so it doesn't really matter if he caught up with Darius, fled into exile, or was killed right there. Most of his men were killed in Alexander's assault, and the remainder were sent fleeing up the Persian road toward Persepolis. Alexander gave orders to pursue rather than rest on their laurels, with the gates flung open, allowing the Macedonian army to continue on their way. They marched right up to Persepolis, where Ariobarzanes' men stood in terror outside the gates of the palace complex, which had been barred shut by Tiridates, chief treasurer of Persepolis. It turns out that Tiridates had been in secret correspondence with Alexander for months, and had already agreed to surrender if the Macedonians made it that far. The few soldiers who remained from the Persian gates were massacred outside the walls of the complex. Now, Alexander's time in Persepolis is one of the most infamous events in his life, but before getting into that, I want to step back. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. 
I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Up in Ekbatana, Darius III was still preparing for his comeback tour as King of Kings, but the Battle of the Persian Gates does raise an interesting question about this podcast. Setting aside the fact that it's always really been a history of ancient Iranian empire and not Persia specifically, who do I consider the main character king, so to speak? Alexander now rules Parsa but the Achaemenids are still kicking. The next big transition, sometime around episode 200 if I have to guess, will have to work through an extended period of two primary dynasties overlapping. Fortunately, the Achaemenid to Hellenistic transition is pretty straightforward. However, insofar as I'm concerned about which side is actually the quote-unquote Persian Empire right now, it's still Darius, at least for today. The Great King. King of... Kings, maybe? He might not have many vassals left. He was still hunkered down in Ekbatana at this point, even as his empire disintegrated before his eyes. The Achaemenids still controlled most of Iran and Central Asia, and on top of that, they still had their vassal alliances with the Dahai and several other Saka groups. However, the actual organization of these regions makes a full list pretty misleading. Darius's primary supporters at this point were the satraps Atropates of Media, Orontes of Armenia, Bessus of Bactria, and Barsaentes of Drangiana. We don't know much about Atropates before this time, and we've met Orontes and Bessus several times before. Barsaentes and Drangiana are kind of a new factor for this podcast, which is ironic considering the state of the Achaemenid Empire. Drangiana, which politically included the region of Aracosia at this point, largely corresponds to southwestern Afghanistan today. Known as Zronka in Old Persian, Barsaentes ruled the province from a city of the same name, which morphed into Zaranj, Afghanistan, over time. 
Of the major remaining provinces, Drangiana seems to have been the least militarily exhausted. That's understandable, given that it was one of the furthest from the front and lacked the cavalry value and Sokka alliances of Bactria, but it also means that one of the largest components of Darius's third army was gathering near the city of Zhranka. And make no mistake, they were gathering. Darius still had every intention of facing Alexander. However, the fall of Parsa and the betrayal of Tiridates the treasurer threw a wrench into the plan. Darius had expected more time to prepare, meaning that the armies of Bactria and Drangiana were still in their respective provinces. The Persian rump state was left scrambling to come up with a plan D to salvage their situation. Back in Parsa, you may have noticed that the Battle of the Persian Gates seems like it should have been a kind of big deal, but I didn't provide very many details. That's because there aren't many details available. And if you read the Alexandrian sources, you'll notice a distinct tone shift after Galgamela. Battles keep happening, including some that are described as difficult and brutal for the Macedonians, but details are kept to a minimum, even by Arian and Curtius. The implication from the details we do get is that Alexander's forces faced much more consistent resistance as they moved through Iran than they had in the Western Empire. And though they were still victorious, they were much less glamorous fights. The Battle of the Persian Gates, in particular, is thought to have yielded some of the heaviest Macedonian casualties in the entire war. Fewer than 2,000 Persians brought down many times their own number in that pass, dealing a genuine blow to Alexander's military capabilities as the Macedonians struggled to break into the Persian heartland. Though it was a tactical loss, in some ways it was still a strategic victory for Darius, buying the eastern satraps, especially Barsanes and Bessus, enough time to raise significant forces even if they weren't in Ecbatana yet. But now we need to let Alex into Persepolis. Alexander, the officer corps, the traveling Macedonian courtiers, both Macedonians and various Persians and other West Asians who had joined them, and some of the favored soldiers entered the palace terrace. The rest of the army was treated to a speech from their king, describing Persepolis as the very image and symbol of their age-old enemy. Then they were set loose on the outer city. The commoner encampment and noble buildings west of the palace and the massive stone mansions of Persepolis South were free game for loot and pillage. The inhabitants were assaulted and murdered, their possessions taken, their decor stripped from the walls, and even their very homes stolen from them as the soldiers took up residence. This was allowed to carry on for the next five months. We've discussed the outer city before, Persepolis West was destroyed in the preparations for Muhammad Reza Shah's 2,500-year celebration in the 1970s, and neither Persepolis South nor the outlying villages and palaces administered by the capital's treasury have been thoroughly excavated well enough to fully understand the scale of the Macedonian plundering. 
However, a sad and gruesome example has been found in the bowels of the palace complex. In August of 2020, a group of human and animal skeletons were discovered in the irrigation tunnels under the palace, which would once have irrigated the paradise gardens of the Achaemenid royalty. These poor souls and their livestock apparently took refuge from the slaughter by hiding in the tunnels, and were either hunted down or more likely trapped there in the city of Parsa's final days. Meanwhile, up on top of the terrace, Alexander and his closest companions devolved into their greatest and worst excesses. The king himself had always been known for a drunken and violent streak, the Macedonians were infamously heavy drinkers as a culture, at least by literally watered-down Greek standards, and I think we've all seen Alexander's personal capacity for violence. However, since arriving in Babylon, Alexander had supposedly reveled more and more in the decadence of the Persian capitals, and frankly, it's kind of hard to blame him for it. Alexander was born into a small but growing kingdom and raised on imperial ambition, but fundamentally he was still a product of the poor and hardscrabble states of the ancient Balkans. Even the wealthiest and most prosperous cities of Greece couldn't hold a candle to the significantly more ancient and powerful places Alexander had conquered. And with each passing palace capital, the opportunities... The opportunities for debauchery and revelry, the likes of which he had never dreamed, grew. We should remember that, for all his grandeur and accomplishment, Alexander was only 26, and the only person to consistently say no to him was Parmenion. Everybody else at least outwardly celebrated his every move. I'm the same age and as introverted as can be, but it's hard to imagine not letting that and the uninterrupted string of total victory go to your head. It was late January, and they knew Darius was holed up deep in the northern Zagros. The winter snows would render any attempt to continue the campaign useless, so they stayed in Persepolis for five months of revelry, and preparation, but mostly revelry. By now, Alexander had quite the assortment of hangers-on, friends, and paramours. Some were his war buddies, his father's old friends, childhood friends, and so on. Queen Mother Sisigambis and her granddaughters were now just as much a part of the royal entourage as they were hostages, as was Barsine, the daughter of Artabazus. In Babylon, one of Darius III's masculine concubines, the teenage eunuch Bagoas the Younger, had caught Alexander's attention, and Alexander brought Bagoas into his own de facto harem of unofficial lovers, alongside at least Hephaestion. Diodorus and Plutarch present an unusual for Alexander inclusion in this group as well. Thais, a Greek courtesan that Alexander had taken a liking to. Thais's presence stands out against near-universal agreement in our sources that Alexander had little to no interest in women. General assumptions that her status as a hetaira, or courtesan, 
indicated a sexual relationship may simply be incorrect. Hetaira was not a direct equivalent to prostitute or concubine, and could merely mean an unmarried female courtier in aristocratic circles. She may just have been someone that Alexander liked. She may also be a rare example of Alexander being interested in a woman at this point in his life. Who knows? After five months of drinking and partying, it was late May. The mountains would be reliably thawed out by then, and the time was coming for the Macedonian Empire to continue expanding. But the last night in Persepolis descended into chaos. Diodorus and Plutarch placed the blame on Thais for egging on Alexander's worst instincts during a literal bacchanal, celebrating the god Dionysus, encouraging Alexander to exact revenge on Persia for the burning of her own city, Athens, 150 years earlier. Curtius tells a similar story, but only blames the courtesan for encouraging Alexander's debauchery, which got out of control. Arian, though, says that it was a cold, calculated, and sober parting gift to the Persians for their resistance. Of them, Curtius is probably the most accurate because it wouldn't make sense for Alexander or any of his court to intentionally destroy one of their grandest prizes. An accident just makes more sense. Regardless of the true origins of that night's events, Persepolis burned. The fire started in the great palace of Xerxes on the southern end of the terrace, but almost 200 years of continuous building had led to a series of closely grouped buildings with wooden supports and awnings spanning between them all over the complex. As the Macedonians raced to empty as much from the treasury as they could, the flames lipped and spread from palace to palace to audience hall to treasury, consuming the greatest monument of the Achaemenid dynasty. Persepolis was leveled that night in May 330 BCE, never to rise again. It would pass into myth and legend as the seat of a semi-divine hero king, Jamshid, whose greater palace was hidden underground and would provide refuge for the righteous in the end times. But for many in Parsa, this did appear to be the end times, and Alexander's destruction of their greatest administrative center would prove a disastrous setback for the region going forward. However, the Macedonians themselves paid little thought to this as they began marching north. They were off to Ecbatana, planning to besiege the city and destroy Darius III once and for all. At this moment, with the Macedonians pouring up the royal road, the great king had a choice to make. Most of his would-be army was still in the east. He could stand and fight, risking everything in a siege that Alexander could almost certainly win, or he could abandon Media and the last Achaemenid capital to Alexander, head east to Bactria, and rally again once his forces had gathered. He chose the latter option. King Darius escaped from Ecbatana just as Alexander approached, fleeing toward the Caspian Gates and the road to the steppe satrapies. 
Orontes of Armenia could not abandon his satrapy, nor could Atropates of Media. So Orontes returned home with his native forces to dig in at Van. Atropides, out of time and out of options, opened the gates to the ancient Median capital and gave Alexander control of Ecbatana without a fight. And that is, to me, the moment where the empire changed hands. Not because Alexander had captured all capitals like some kind of forex strategy game, but because Ecbatana is the key to the kingdom. We have seen and will see again that Ecbatana changing hands is the sign that the era is coming to an end. The age of Persia began in earnest when Cyrus the Great took Ecbatana. The age of Parthia will begin with the fall of that city as well. Darius III has now abandoned all his ancestral centers of power to Alexander and is in full flight. It only seems fitting to see that moment as the beginning of the Hellenistic Age. And yet, the Achaemenid dynasty lives on and has every intention of fighting to the death. So there will be no rest just because the writing is very clearly on the wall. Next time, Alexander will pursue Darius across northern Iran. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things, including the support page, to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com, or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.